0: Uh, You can uh, follow along on the screens this morning as I'll read from our passage on which our sermon is based, 2 Samuel 9. Friends, these words are utterly true, and they're given to us in love. And David said, Is there still anyone left in the house of Saul that I may show kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now, there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba and they called to him David and the king said to him are you Ziba and he said I'm your servant and the king said is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him. Ziba said to the king there there is still a son of Jonathan he is crippled in his feet and the king said where is he and Ziba said to the king he is in the house of Maker the son of Emiel at Lodabar. Then the king uh, David sent and brought him from the house of Maker, son of Amiel, at Lodabar. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, Behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. And I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage and said, What is your servant that you should show regard for such a dead dog such as I? Then the, house, uh, then the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, All that belonged to Saul and to all his house I have given to your master's grandson. And you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But, but Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. And then Ziba said to the king, according to all that my lord, the king commands his servant, so that your servant will do. And so Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah, and all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame in both feet. Friends, Uh, This is the word of the Lord. Will you pray with me? And so, Father, uh, we come to your word uh, for you to teach us, uh, for you to remind us of the beauty of the gospel this morning, to, to meet us where we are, no matter what we bring in this room. Forgive the preacher. He is a sinner. But may we see Jesus, because grace changes everything. We pray this in his name, amen. You may be seated. Uh, before I get to the sermon today, uh, I just want to highlight really quickly our new welcome team that uh, has been working with Pastor Mark. Uh, they're going to have a meeting for lunch today at 1130 in the space. And uh, the reason I bring that up, just the nature of our topic that we're going to be discussing today, you may feel led by uh, God's spirit. Uh, man, I'd like to be a part of that welcome team after the service. I just wanted you to know Pastor Mark is prepared for you. He's ordered extra food if you'd like to join them um, to hear more. More information about the welcome team if you're interested maybe to serve. So 1130 in the space outside these doors and upstairs. Uh, if you're new with us today, Um, My name's Tyler, I'm one of the pastors here. I'm really glad that you're with us uh, today, and uh, you actually are joining us in a sermon series called We Are Orangewood. It's actually a wonderful time if you're here and you're new to to be with us as we are talking about uh, our new mission statement as a church and our values, uh, what will guide us as we move forward into the future and life of our great church. And uh, as I shared as we kicked off our sermon series, um, our new mission statement is simply this. Inviting every person into the life-changing story of Jesus. Inviting every person into the life-changing story of Jesus. That's who we are. That's, that's why we are here as we seek to move forward. Inviting every person in. And today we're covering our second value uh, here at Orangewood. And these are the things that I shared last week. Values are what's, what do you uniquely feel when you enter into the life of a church body. Values are primarily what already exists Uniquely in the life of the church. Another way to talk about values is what's been true of Orangewood's past that we long to be a part of her future? What are those unique pieces to our DNA? And as I shared our first value last week, which was always truth, always love, this week we're going to be looking at our second value, which is welcome and wanted. Welcome and wanted. We want to foster. An inviting presence, creating a sense of belonging for every person, no matter where they are in their journey with Jesus. And this value was the one that I felt the most my very first time here uh, visiting Orangewood Church. I, I'd flown in with Rachel, my wife, and we were here for a, a pastoral potential pastoral candidating trip to, to get to know some people in the church, uh, to experience the life of the church. And we came on Sunday, and uh, you guys were so kind. Uh, uh, people coming up to us, uh, they, they didn't know that we were here as a potential pastoral candidate. They just saw someone new, and you, you introduced yourself. Uh, you could tell that we were new. You, you, you said, um, hey, listen, we're, we're so glad that you're here. Some of you even pulled us aside and said, listen, we're actually looking for a new lead pastor right now. Um, We're looking for, they're going to actually, what we know is they're going to start bringing in candidates anytime soon. Anytime soon they're going to be here. And of course, I'm just listening, really fascinating, (laughs) unbelievable. Wow, I'm so excited for you. But it was such a perfect example of how I experienced welcome and wanted at Orangewood. Uh, And we long for Orangewood to continue to be marked by this value this unique value as we move forward into the future. And why? Why? Because welcome and wanted really is another way of speaking to the biblical concept of hospitality. Uh, you, hear, you hear a lot today, people talking about hospitality and uh, increasing your business's success with hospitality, having having a best get, a better guest services experience. you hear a lot about hospitality, but, but that's not the real lens through which we see biblical Hospitality. We actually we see it defined differently uh, in the book of Hebrews. It says this: Let brotherly love continue. Do not gl- neglect to show hospitality to strangers. Now, this Greek word for hospitality is the word philoxenia, which means the love of the stranger. You you actually today may hear a different um, use of those words when you hear the words xenophobia. You may have heard that xenophobia. That is the fear of the stranger, and we see throughout history of the church that the Gospels reach into new communities, into new cultures, into places it hasn't been before. It was always marked and came along with biblical hospitality. Christine Pohl is a scholar. She's studied uh, the history of the church. She's studied uh, how hospitality broke into new communities and new cultures. Um, she, She looks at this in her excellent book, Making Room, and this is what she wrote. The distinctive Christian contribution was the emphasis on including the stranger, the ones who could not return the favor. This focus did not dismiss the value of hospitality to family and friends. Rather, it broadened the practice so that the close relations formed by table fellowship and conversation could be extended to the most vulnerable. Even a superficial review of church history reveals the importance of hospitality to the spread and the credibility of the gospel. Julian was uh, one of the Roman Empire uh, emperors during the Roman Empire reign in the fourth century. And and Julian had a major opposition and hostility uh, to the Christian gospel and the Christian message. Uh, but even Julian recognized uh, what was happening in their own culture. You see, the, the Christian message was going forward and touching not only the life of people, part of the church, but they were caring for the needs of pagan Romans. This is what he wrote. Julian wrote to pagan Roman priests in response to this. This is what he said. When it came about that the poor were neglected and overlooked by the pagan priests, then I think the impious Christians observed this fact and devoted themselves to hospitality. They support not only their, own, only their poor, but ours as well. All men see that our people lack aid from us. So Julian is writing, uh, this was in his works. Julian's writing, and he's, and he's saying he's, he's, he's both upset, angered, and beautifully enthralled by the Christian story, beautifully attracted to what they were doing. The church was a beautiful picture of a different way to live, showing that there is a different world and reality that we can live into, where all are welcome and wanted. And with the time I have left, I want to address two things, from, two, not three, just in case you're wondering. The sermon will still be as long, just in case you're wondering. Two things from our passage for how Orangewood is invited to live out this beautiful value for a better world. First, we'll have to look at the need for welcome and wanted culturally. And second, the path to welcome and wanted personally. So let's look first at the need for welcome and wanted culturally. And we actually see this in the very first verse of our passage that was read. And this is what it says. And David said, is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Uh, David brings up this same idea in our passage, not only here in verse 1, he brings it up again in verse 3 and verse 7. Uh, he's looking for someone to show kindness to. Now, um, our English translation of this word kindness gets really muted. It's it's actually this beautifully rich Hebrew word uh, called hesed, uh, which means steadfast or covenant love. The, the idea behind it is, I will fulfill all my obligations to you. And all the vows I've made to you at cost to myself. And if you're, you're already beginning to hear the thread of Hesed and what opposition that stands to, and how we view relationships. And our view of love in our culture today. See, the opposite of covenant love would be consumer or conditional love. A, a consumer relationship today uh, would be, um, I, I, I want you to give me the best quality product at the best and fair price, or I'm going to go down the street to to who your your competitor. I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to change loyalties, and that's that's not a bad thing. It's actually good for for marketplace societies and commerce, but conditional love is fine when it's only about products. It's infinitely dangerous when it seeps into our relationships. I will love you as long as you are worthy of love. I will love you as long as you agree with me. We're seeing conditional love in an ever-increasing tribalism world. Now, I, I want to make sure I, I, I distinguish carefully. Human beings are tribal. That's what it means. We're, we're going we're to join tribes. We're going we're to be part of communities. We're social beings. That's what it means to, to be human, is to be tribal. Um, this is why some of you are Gators fans. This is why some of you are Seminole fans. Or should I say some of you were Seminole fans? Uh, it, it. We are tribal. tribalism. Tribalism is when you hear another tribe named and you immediately feel disgust, you immediately feel rage, you immediately feel hatred welling up within you. And we are seeing in a more fragmented society relationships function like this because of conditional love. I actually was talking uh, to someone recently, not part of our church. They were sharing with me about their family, their, their, their child will no longer Speak to them, will no longer be in relationship with them because they disagree on an issue we find in our time. The completely severing of relationships at this time over tribalism. So, so, sociologists and anthropologists today believe that we are living in the most divided society and culture of America since the Civil War. And it seems now that there are is an ever-increasing list of things to be divided about. But not just disagree over, oh, no, 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 no. Those days are long gone where we could just say, hey, you, you, you disagree on this, and I disagree with you on that. No, 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 that doesn't exist anymore in our culture. Now we can't just disagree. We vilify. They are the enemy. There was an interesting study done a few years back in the New York Times where uh, they had polled people on different sides of the political aisle, political views, and they asked them this question. The people who disagree with you, those, those on the opposite side of the political aisle, they are not just wrong, but they're evil. And not, not, not just that we fundamentally disagree about the best direction for our country, but they're evil. I want to care to guess what percentage thought that the other side of the political aisle wasn't just wrong, but, but evil. 43%, 43% said those people, they are what's wrong with our country. They're not just wrong, but they're evil. There is an increasing division and hostility in our nation. The other thing about enemies is that enemies give us a sense of control in a world of chaos and uncertainty, much like we find, I don't know, in the middle of a pandemic. We have an image of what is wrong with the world. There was actually an interesting study done on the psychology of enemies. They, they, they asked this group of people um, to draw an image of some enemy, some, someone who, who defines evil in this world. And so some people drew an image of an ISIS terrorist. Um, some people drew an image um, of someone on the other side of the political aisle from them. Uh, some people drew actually an Alabama football fan. Okay, the last one's not true. That's my issue. Okay, I'm working through that. I've got good friends helping me. But but they, the study was done. They, they drew an image of of, of Of what marks evil in this world, and and after they they drew this image, they were immediately asked about their sense of well-being. They drew the picture, immediately asked about their sense of well-being, and what they found out is these participants, after drawing the image, the the participants reported that there was a greater sense that the world was less dangerous and less chaotic after drawing that image. There's a sense that the problem with the world All the evils in the world now has a face and now has a name. Social media, you know this, has not helped our issue. Billions of dollars are spent on algorithms that have created fuel to the fire. Uh, Zed Jelani is a journalist. He's written a lot on the power and the influence of social media and also its connection with politics and what that is doing uh, to our world. He wrote an article recently called Social Media Success is Driven by Hate. In the article, he highlights these various algorithms uh, that are used in social media to connect people to the to their tribe, their in-group, but in opposition, those algorithms are meant to create animosity to the hatred of the other tribe. He cited several studies that were done and talked about how these social media companies are financially more lucrative and attractive when we hate the other more, when we hate the other more. And this is what he writes. Our social media companies are a slot machine. They are designed to keep you using them by any means necessary, including addiction. And right now they're addicting us to hating our enemies. Now, please don't hear me saying you should not be on social media. That is not what I'm implying at all. Feel free to use it. But I want you to see that the division that exists in our culture, the rise of isolation and uncertainty because of the pandemic, and billions of dollars in algorithms, is a perfect stew in our modern day to promote this tribalism and conditional love. In our passage, Mephibosheth was David's enemy. Uh, he remember, Mephibosheth is part of Saul's family. Uh, he was his grandson. David was Saul's enemy, if you remember the story. So Mephibosheth has every reason to believe that David has called for and ordered him to the palace for one reason only. And that is to finish off Saul's lineage. This is why we see Mephibosheth so afraid in verses 6 and 7. This is what we read. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, behold, I am your servant. And David says to him, do not fear. Uh, Mephibosheth believed he was, he was being called into the home of his enemy to be done away with. He, and that's, he fell on his face, literally in the Hebrew. It, he fell prostrate before David. He, he is there pleading for mercy. Do not kill me. The last thing he thinks he's going to receive his hospitality. The last thing that he thinks he's going to receive is that he is welcome and wanted. He, he is there. He thinks he's going to die. And he has every reason to believe that because you see, in the, this is a very common practice in the ancient Near East. When, when a new regime came to power, they, they went about ending any sort of semblance of the previous regime. And Mephibosheth thinks he is back in the palace to get killed. But David doesn't doesn't kill him. David doesn't even say to him, okay, listen, our tribes don't get along. Uh, Go back to Lodabar, which in Hebrew uh, means no pasture. Uh, Go back to Lodabar, which was the city shanty. Um, it, It was where you went if you were lame or marginalized. David doesn't even tell him, listen, just stay out of my way and everything will be okay. He doesn't say that. In fact, look at the audacious. The audacious offer in verse 7. He says this. And David said to him, do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. And I will restore to you all the land of your Saul, your father. And you shall eat at my table always. David tells Mephibosheth that you will eat always at my table. Now, please, we, we cannot lose the significance of this in the ancient world. Our modern world just, just does not have a translation for this. Table fellowship in the ancient world was the greatest sign to you that you were welcome and wanted. This is one of the main issues that the Pharisees had with Jesus. Uh, he, Jesus was going about meeting with people, and that's what was the common refrain for people. They, they, the Pharisees would say, he eats with sinners. He eats with sinners. Notice that David doesn't even say, you can eat at my table if you stay in line. Or, you can eat at my table if you help in the fields. He couldn't. We've learned from the passage, he's, he's lame. He's crippled in both feet. He doesn't even say to Mephibosheth, you need to switch tribes. He tells Mephibosheth, you will always have a seat at my table. It's covenantal love, not conditional love. Friends, listen, this is incredibly risky for David, what he's, what he's doing here. Um, and the reason why is we learn earlier in the chapters of Second Samuel um, that shortly after Saul's death, rather than anointing David immediately as king, uh, there was another tribe that rose up. Tribal tribalism that has been around for a long time. Uh, there was another tribe that rose up, saying Ishbosheth was the true king because he was from the bloodline of Saul. And so this was incredibly risky for for David to have someone from the other party. Having him at his house, uh, incredibly dangerous. Mephibosheth is behind the enemy lines. He could have exploited David's hospitality. He, he, he always had a seat at David's table. Mephibosheth could get close enough at the table to kill him. David is reaching out across political lines, across tribal lines. So the question is, friends, how could we possibly become those kind of people in our day and age when we are so divided? Radical hospitality, welcome and wanted. How can we become that kind of people? Well, we need to see the path to welcome and wanted personally. How do we become people living out this value? Well, how do we become welcome and wanted people? Well, we actually see it in this passage. It's the gospel, it's buried in there. And we actually see it. Uh, in this section is David is relentless. He is relentless to bless Saul's family. And you have to be asking why? Why is is he so consumed with blessing Saul's family? I mean, uh, David has lived under constant fear of Saul, thinking he was out to kill him. Um, He spent most of his life on the run uh, in constant uh, being chased by uh, Saul. Why would David be so fixed on blessing his family? Why, why? Why? Well, we actually get the clue in verse seven. It's because of Jonathan. This is what it says in verse seven. And David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. Uh, Here we see there is a commitment to covenant love. Saul's Saul's line has been marked by shame now. He's he's been cut off from the inheritance that he had as royalty. Um, His family has been cut off from all the promises that were theirs. But what we read is because of Jonathan's obedience, his obedience has been imputed to his people, to his line. When we actually reread this earlier in 1 Samuel 20, there's an exchange between David and Jonathan where, where Jonathan says to, to David, I, I, I will always care for you. I will always show hospitality to you, though you're part of the, the enemy tribe uh, concerning my father. Um, I will always show favor to you. I will always, I will always care for you. I've, all I ask is that my loyalty to you, my obedience to you will be passed down to my line. That's what he said, and and Jonathan's obedience gets imputed to his descendants, though they have done absolutely nothing to be worthy of it, and oh, my friends, there is a better Jonathan whose obedience has been imputed to you, though you have done absolutely nothing to deserve it. Uh, for, for you to always know that you have a seat at God's table. You see, Jesus was cut off. It, it tells us Jesus was made the stranger. Um, it, one of the most quoted uh, sections of the Old Testament, you may not know this, is, is Psalm 69. It's one of the most quoted sections in the New Testament uh, referring to Jesus. And, and this is what we read, Psalm 69, 7 through 8. For it is for your sake that I have borne reproach. That dishonor has covered my face. I have become a stranger to my brothers, an alien to my mother's sons. Friends, on the cross, Jesus became the stranger for you. He, he, he bore our reproach. Uh, he, he was rejected. He was cut off. On the cross, Jesus experienced cosmic alienation. He experienced the cosmic lodabar. That he was cut off so that we could be brought in. The one who had all rights and privileges to royalty. The one who, who always had a seat at the table was cut off so that you and I could be brought in forever. Uh, this is how you know you're a Christian. Uh, you can look at your life and you can say, I have been an enemy of God. I, I, I shouldn't be at this table. I, I should be a stranger to God. I, I shouldn't be welcome. But, but Jesus became the stranger for me. Because he took my sin on the cross. I now know No matter what I face, I'm a child of God forever. I am accepted. I am beloved. I am redeemed. I am ransomed. Because of his obedience for me, it's because of his steadfast love for me, I know that I'm always welcome to the table. Look at the Gospels. Um, You see the Gospels. You see the situation with Jesus. Jesus' issue in the first century with the Pharisees was that they believed that they were in. They believed they were in. They, they, they went about their life, carrying out uh, their works, believing that they were saved. But the irony was the people that were allowed to their table were the only those who looked just like them, the ones who acted just like them, the ones who, who thought of God just like them. The, the, the Pharisees believed that they were in, but they were out. And the Gospels, over and over, we, what we see is the people who think they're out, the people who think they're in Lodabar, it's those people who are actually in. It's the people who, who, who say, uh, uh, God, I'm crying out to you. It's, it's the people like the tax collector in Luke 18 who beats his chest and says, Lord, have mercy on me. It's those people who are welcomed home into the arms of God forever. You will always have a seat at my table. Walker Percy, uh, in his book, Love in Ruins, I think paints beautifully this picture of the gospel in this quote. He says this, we love those who know the worst of us and don't turn their faces away. Friends, Jesus has seen the very worst in your life. He knows your past. He knows your current secret. He knows the shame and insecurity you have carried. And you thought your spouse loved you. You thought your kids loved you. Well, sometimes. You thought your kids loved you. You thought your friends loved you. Jesus has seen everything, and he doesn't turn his face away. More than that, he died on the cross so that you would know you are his forever. You will always have a seat at my table. He was cast out so that we could be brought to the table of God forever. So that you would always know, even here this morning, as hard as it is for some of us to believe, that you right now are welcome and wanted. So you would always know, no matter what has happened, he is pleading with you, pleading with you, inviting you, come home, come home. You won't find anyone who will love you like that. You won't find an identity today that frees you like the gospel. You won't find anyone who loves you at your worst and still says, I love you. Come home. Every other religion will demand you to clean up first. Every other identity will demand you to put in more hours at the office, lose 10 more pounds, or is asking you to perform or deliver more. Put this way. Every other identity will welcome and want you when you are at your very best. But Jesus loves us right here. He welcomes and wants us even at our worst, at the bottom. When we were lame and living in Lodabar. In 2003, I went to um, Kenya uh, on a trip to build a potential orphanage for the street kids of Kenya. And if you don't know about this issue that has been existing for a while in Kenya. There are roughly 300,000 children who are orphaned living currently on the streets of Kenya. And part of our trip there, uh, we were working with a local pastor who was providing a meal for these children one day. There were just three conditions that the kids had to agree to to receive this meal. The The first thing was they had to give up their glue And you may not know about this issue, but uh, glue uh, was uh, basically all the kids would carry around a small little plastic bottle with rubber cement in the bottom. Just a small little bit. And uh, this was their way of sniffing the glue and it would help them get high and numb out at the nights. Uh, It was a cheap way for them to numb and forget their reality. So first they they had to leave behind their glue. The second thing they had to do was they had to listen to a Bible story taught by one of my friends that was on this trip with me. And then the final thing they had to do was we gave them bars of soap and they had to walk a half mile down the street to the local river river to bathe. And so those were the three things they had to do. Um, And there was one of the street kids that I noticed there um, that the other kids, the other street kids were caring for because this kid, he couldn't have been older than three. I mean, he, he was by far the youngest kid that was there. Um, I asked the other street kids what was his name. They told me his name was David. I mean, can you imagine three years old, orphaned on the dirty streets of Kenya? During my time there, uh, I, I learned a few phrases in Swahili that I still remember today, still to remember. Uh, the first one was uh, Hakuta Matata, which some of you guys may know, right? It means what? No worries because you've seen Lion King? right? Um, uh, the, the second one that I heard pretty frequently was also from Lion King. You may not know this, was the word Rafiki. Rafiki means friend. But the last one I heard, I heard by far the most. Everywhere I went, I heard it. A- every time I walked into a store, every, every time I was leaving a store, everywhere I went, I heard this phrase more than anything else, Mzungu. Mazungu. It happens so many times. I finally had to say to one of these kids, hey, what, what does Mzungu mean? And they go, ah, yes, white man, white man. So Mzungu was the phrase that marked me wherever I went. And so the kids got rid of their glue. They, they listened to the Bible story, and then they made the half mile trek down the road to bathe in this river. But David, of course, was three years old at best. He wasn't going to make it. It was too long and too far. So they uh, had asked me, would I pick him up and carry him to the river? And as, as I'm carrying him, I cannot just describe the look on his face. Uh, he, he had this face. He was incredibly confused. Look at me like, who the heck are you? Who the heck are you? Why are you carrying me? And then, of course, he uttered the words, Mazungu. But while I walked to the water to bathe him, tears began rolling down my face under my sunglasses because Jesus was teaching me the gospel on that walk. He, He said to me, Tyler, you are just like David. You looked at me like you could do it on your own, but I had to carry you to the water. You weren't going to make it. You're just as lame as Mephibosheth. Jesus says to you this morning, whatever mess you've been in, whatever stain you bear, I will wash you. What you can't do for yourself, I will take care of you. What you can't fix, I will carry you. I will redeem you. Just come home. Just come home. What we couldn't do for ourselves, Jesus has done for us in the gospel. So you will always have a seat at the table. So you will always be welcomed in God's sight forever. No questions, no hesitations, no condemnation, no resentment. Just the simple invitation every moment of every day. Just come home. You see, you thought you were at the bottom. (laughs) You think you're at the bottom. Oh, no, 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 no. Mephibosheth was at the very, very bottom. I mean, in our passage, the author is, is trying to get this so crystal clear to you so you can pick it up. Um, Mephibosheth was at the very bottom. It tells us in verse 3 that Mephibosheth can't walk, uh, that he is lame. It tells us at the very end of our passage, verse 13, that he is, he is crippled in both feet. He, he, he is lame. And the passage is trying to tell us if there is someone who does not deserve to be at this table, it is him. Uh, being lame in ancient cultures marked you. They drove you to Lodabar to get you, the, to get you out of their sight. But because of the obedience of Jonathan, Mephibosheth will always be welcomed and wanted at the king's table. Though he is at the very bottom, he will eat as royalty because of the obedience of another. And oh, my friends, there is one whose obedience invites you to see that you are now royalty. I know it's hard to believe. I know it's hard to believe. You feel like Mephibosheth, but he is inviting you to see that you are royalty. And you now have a seat at the table forever. And when you get the depths that Jesus would go for you, that he would be cut off, that he would be cast out so that you would know always and forever that you are welcome and wanted, though you have done absolutely nothing to receive it, you will see that these royal robes are undeserved. This is the way the Apostle Paul puts it. He says this, All I want is to be found in him. All I want is to be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Jack Miller is one of my favorite authors because he gets the gospel so well, and as painful as it is, he gets our need and what we don't want to see or admit. This is how, what he writes. In our hearts, we really don't think of ourselves as poor and weak. We're always saying, we'll work on getting close to God when we get stronger and have more knowledge. But what really matters is you're coming to God on the basis of his promises and saying, help, I have nothing. That's what grace is all about. Grace means you have nothing. Friends this morning, have you said to God, I'm lame. I'm lame. I I can't make it on my own. I have nothing to offer. I need Jesus to wash me. I, I deserve to be cast out a stranger to your presence. I have been your enemy. But welcome me to your table because of the righteousness of another, because of the obedience of another on my behalf. Welcome me home into your presence because of what Jesus has done to make me clean. He's carried me to the water. He's carried you to the water. When we see more clearly how we were in utter darkness, we, we were in Lodabar, uh, when we see how we've been welcomed home by the gospel, we can begin to extend hospitality and welcome to those we don't know. We, we can begin to expend, extend this steadfast covenant love uh, to those we don't agree with. We, we can lay aside our needs and rights for others because Christ laid aside his needs and rights for me. To welcome home to the table, when I couldn't clean myself up for a meal. I've already heard stories of Orangewood people longing to live out this great value of welcome and wanted. Some of you, uh, you come to church uh, looking to connect with at least one person you've never met before. Some of you say that. Uh, others of you, you're, you're right now caring for the needs of others though you barely know them. Uh, some of you, I know, you're looking to learn from others that you don't agree with politically or theologically to foster discussion and friendship rather than tribalism. And I love what God's doing in our church through this value, and I can't wait to hear the stories that will come in the years ahead of people who share how they felt welcome and wanted, loved and known by you, by you. People brought into our community through you. The Apostle Paul said it this way. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. Friends, come home to the table, the table that you've been invited to that is yours because of the obedience of another. Come come to the table uh, that that God says is is open always and forever to you. No, no, No condemnation, no hesitation, no guilt. And as you come, Extend the hand to others so that they can join the party. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we we are awed again in the beauty of your gospel. Awed at the depths that you would go to reclaim us. We were in Lodabar. We had no way home. We had no right to royalty, but it's the obedience of the one for the many. That you have reclaimed us, you have made us your own. And so, Father, remind us of that great truth this morning. We all need to hear it. Remind us that you are calling us home by your grace and shape us and transform us to be that kind of people welcoming all those around us. And we pray this. In Jesus' name, and everyone said, amen, amen. Amen.